seated. You can open your Bible to uh, Genesis 1 and uh, look at a couple verses there and also from Genesis 2. The text is, uh, for the most part, printed in the bulletin. Um, We're going to uh, think about marriage together this morning. We've been going through a series on Genesis 1 through 3, and we see a lot of themes there just in the first couple chapters of the Bible that continue their way on through the rest of the Bible. Uh, A lot of themes there that um, are some of the most important, uh, most significant themes for humanity, for our relationships, uh, for our communion with God and with each other. And uh, marriage is uh, probably one of the most important things we can think about, and it's one of the things that's highlighted here even at the beginning of the, um, the scriptures. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll think about uh, what God has to say here uh, about marriage. Father, this is a <clears throat> um, difficult subject for probably all of us, whether we're married or not, um, whether we have that uh, relationship in our lives now, or whether we have had it at some time, or whether we will have it, or whether we'll never have it. Um, There are difficulties for us to think about what marriage really is, the significance of it, the way that we're to engage in it and think about it according to your word, um, according to the way that you've created us. And so um, we pray that you would give us your help. We pray that you would uh, give us your peace Uh, your spirit's peace, the peace of Christ, as we consider what you have to say to us this morning. And we pray that this, uh, your word, and especially your gospel, uh, the good news about your son Jesus, would renew us and strengthen us and equip us as we are um, living in this world in the relationships in which you've placed us. We pray this uh, for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start in 126 and read through actually... Uh, verse 28, before moving to chapter 2. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then down in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, as we've looked at over the course of the last few months, uh, we've come to the conclusion that creation of, the, the creation of humanity is sort of the pinnacle of all creation. Everything that God was doing that you see in Genesis 1 and 2 um, in, in his work of creation, humanity is at the top, right? It's the climax. It's the pinnacle of God's creative work. And marriage is, in a sense, the, the very tip-top, the glorious pinnacle of the pinnacle, right? It's like this is, this is where um, God is taking humanity. Uh, and we're made in God's image, which is there right, right there at the beginning of the text, something we've read actually over and over again, uh, verses 26 and 27, where God uh, deliberates with himself using the first person plural, which the best way to understand that is that it's a little hint. It's a little hint of the fact that God is a trinity. He's one God in three persons, and we see that developed over the course of the scriptures, especially as we come to the New Testament. Uh, but we are created in God's image. Special attention is called to that. Special emphasis is placed on that. The image of the triune God means it, that's an image that's reflected in the unity of diversity, right? It's uh, we reflect God's image as we exist in relationships with one another, as we, as we enjoy real unity in the face of real diversity, right? Uh, in, as, as diverse people are brought together as one. And that's what he's, he's uh, recorded here as the creation of humanity. It's one humanity. One humanity. Ma- uh, he, he, he made God, uh, God made humanity in his image uh, male and female. Two sexes, two distinct sexes, right? So one humanity, two distinct sexes. And he says, as it uh, kind of zooms in on the, the creation of humanity itself in, um, in chapter 2, he says that male by himself, that's what God made first, is, is the man, Adam, the male. That's not enough. That's not sufficient, right? That is not enough to constitute humanity in God's image. He says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Everything else has been good and very good to this point. And, uh, and so there, in a sense, there's nothing lacking from uh, Adam's surroundings. Uh, the, the male is created uh, in a good relationship with God and a good relationship with the rest of creation. Uh, but it's not good that the man should be alone. And God said, I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make an ally counterpart. I'll make a help as opposite. Uh, somebody to provide contrast and that contrast would be a help. Right? And so um, this creation of woman uh, does not imply the subordination of, of women. Right? Just to clear that up, it does not imply some sort of essential, substantial subordination of women. Uh, it does not mean that the, the woman is lesser than the man. Because the same language, when, when it says that uh, she's a helper, she's a helper fit for him, that same language is used of God himself. God applies it to himself in other passages where he is Israel's helper. He's the helper of his people. And clearly, we don't think God is subordinate to us. Right? There, there's no, um, he, he's not essentially less than us uh, in his being. Clearly, he's got, God is not less than us. It says in uh, Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. It's that same, same word, same language. He is our help and our shield. So uh, the fact that Eve was made from a rib taken from Adam's side instead of maybe the, the pinky toe on his foot, right? Uh, the fact uh, taken from, from man's side is symbolic of their equality. 
right? So there's no essential subordination uh, in this relationship. There is otherness, right? Otherness. And that otherness, God says, is necessary. We need the other, right? There's this necessary otherness. There's this complementary uh, nature between the sexes, right? Um, so on a on a side note, maybe I shouldn't even mention this. I'll get myself in trouble, and we don't have any sermon discussion planned for today uh, for us to elaborate on this, but this is why when uh, throughout the scriptures and, and Jesus himself uh, refers to this passage as kind of the foundation for marriage, it's, it's uh, a heterosexual marriage, right? Um, it's, it's a marriage between a man and a woman because there's that necessary otherness that God says is necessary and it's good for us. It's a, it's a, a marriage between equals, but these are distinct people. These are different types of people, right? And, um, and this traces all the way back to, to the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. God is one, one God, one being in relationship uh, with another. He's one person in relationship with another inside the eternal uh, relationships of the Trinity, and so is humanity then, right? Uh, we're, we're one humanity in uh, multiple persons, right? Different kinds of people, and um, the deepest, most powerful expression of, of those relationships where you have this necessary otherness and this real union that takes place in relationship, uh, the, the deepest, most powerful expression of that is the one flesh union of marriage, right? where it's said, this is why a man uh, leaves his father and his mother and, and holds fast to, clings to, cleaves to. It becomes a real one flesh union uh, with his wife. <clears throat> and so um, in marriage, you see between a man and a woman, you see the greatest and, and deepest distinction that's possible between types of people, right? The, the, the distinction between the sexes, the difference between a man and a woman, it goes all the way down, right? It's physical, it's more than physical, it's emotional, it's psychological, it's social, there's differences. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, kind of differences, Right? Um, and, and those differences constitute a, a deeper, kind of more essential difference than any other kind of difference that you can register between people, differences of colors, uh, differences of ethnicity or whatever, right? The, the difference between a man and a woman is the greatest sort of ontological difference um, between types of people, and it's impossible for us even to define all the differences. Like we can try with science to map out all the biology, right? Uh, we understand uh, a little bit about that, but, but um, it's really hard for us to, to tell, how, you know, what's, what is it to be feminine? What is it to be masculine? And those things are uh, uh, culturally relative in a lot of ways, you know? A man in this culture acts different from a man in this culture. And those, those are fine, um, fine, both fine expressions of masculinity, and the same with uh, femininity. But, but we give definition to one sex by actually defining it kind of against the other, right? What is a woman? Well, not a man, right? What is a man? Hmm. It's hard to say much. Uh, you define them in relationship to each other, don't you? Um, that's, it's, it's hard for us to define all the differences, but we give definition to one sex by setting it off in contrast to the other or in comparison to the other, right? So uh, Mike Mason says this about marriage. To be married is to have found in a total stranger a near and long-lost relative, a true blood relative, even closer to us than father or mother. In marriage, a man is given the opportunity of seeing one woman, one person, as he has never seen any woman or person before. 
Marriage not only affords as deep a glimpse into the heart and soul of another being as we shall ever have, but it cannot survive without deliberately striving to preserve the spontaneity and freshness of this insight. Marriage seems to specialize at times in radically de-emphasizing the similarities between the partners and wildly exaggerating the points of difference. But this is so that a couple may come to know one another at the deepest level, at the only level that really matters, bone of bone, flesh of flesh. Um, so marriage, as, as simply as it can be defined, I think is, uh, is the contemplation of the love of God in and through the form of another human being, right? in relationship, in close, deep uh, relationship with another human being. And marriage, is the, it's the permanent joining, it's the complete joining, like holistic joining of one man and one woman in, in true intimacy, right? And Adam is delighting. This is a, a poem that expresses his delight that he gives us here. At last, finally, he breaks into song. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, right? He, he has delight and they have intimacy. They were naked and they were not ashamed. Uh, they knew each other uh, deeply and profoundly, probably more profoundly than any of us will ever experience in, in our relationships, right? They knew each other before the fall, uh, before things went wrong, before sin, right? And so marriage is not a result of the fall. Right? Marriage is part of the way things were supposed to be, and it's a really significant part of the way things were supposed to be before things went wrong, before the, uh, humanity fell into sin. Marriage is, uh, is not just a capitulation to the way things are now that they're broken. They're not just a way to get through life, right? Uh, uh, you need the, the mutual support, the companionship, uh, you need the, the um, out, outlet for your lusts or whatever. It's, it's not just that. It's not just a way to compensate for the brokenness of the world, for the difficulties of this life um, as, a, as an exhaust vent for lusts or a remedy for depressing loneliness or even just a way to um, uh, just keep the human race going through reproduction. Right? It's not just that. Marriage is something profound, and uh, the intimacy there is... Uh, is a great uh, mystery, uh, but God said that it was necessary. Adam was perfect, right? Adam was perfect, but being sinless wasn't enough. He, uh, God said it wasn't good that even this sinless human existed alone, so God made Eve, God brought Eve to Adam, like a father gives the bride away at a wedding, um, and Adam rejoiced and was amazed, and you can feel the wonderment he had no lack of reason for rejoicing before he got married. Uh, as the whole world was his, he was in perfect relationship with God, but he rejoiced in finding this necessary other. Right? This necessary other. He, he rejoiced uh, in finding someone to love, someone to give himself to, because that's what he was made for. That's When he was made in God's image, that's what he was made for. He didn't just need someone to love him. He needed someone to love that's what it means to be made in God's image. I say this uh, in premarital counseling a lot, and I've um, uh, and outside of premarital counseling a lot too. But it's 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 a kind of essential component of it. Um, we talk about sex during uh, premarital counseling, and I say you've you've probably been waiting for a long time, decades even. You've probably been waiting to get that pleasure, and uh, you need that's that's kind of backwards. <laughs> you need to be thinking in terms of you should be waiting to give that pleasure. You should be waiting to give yourself 
to someone. That's what marriage is, not just getting, not just having someone love you. Um, it's kind of a selfish distortion of what love really is. No, you were made to give yourself in love. Um, and so if Adam were going to be like God, which God said as his explicit stated purpose up front, we're going to make man in our image, right? He's going to enjoy relationships. If Adam is going to be like God, God would have to create someone equal to him but distinct from him in order for him to love that person. If Adam's going to be like God, he needs somebody to love who is equal but distinct uh, for him to give himself to in love so that their love could spread to others. If, if Adam's going to be like God, he's got to love someone in such a way that their love, their, their communion spreads to other people. And so God says, as he blesses this, this couple, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? Um, uh, the children of their love would carry their love forth and it would spread uh, over uh, all the earth. That was the explicit purpose if, if Adam were going to be like God. So um, John Calvin said, man was formed to be a social animal. And this is sort of the, the nuclear relationship through which uh, humanity is supposed to be uh, social. It's this covenant, right? It's this... Um, these promises, these, these mutual promises that are being made to each other, promises to love in the future no matter what. Not so much declarations of my current love, my current feelings for you now, but promises about my future love. I will always love you until I die. I will always give myself for you. Um, it's exclusive. Uh, you're not making this covenant with more than one person at a time. It's monogamous, right? Uh, it's permanent, it's lifelong, and it's a whole life union. Your, your pursuits are united. Your bodies are united. Right? Um, and, uh, and this is better than sort of an egocentric romance. You know, when people are really passionate and romantic and infatuated, a lot of that is, is um, self-centered, right? Finally, I've discovered someone who really is into me. Someone who is apparently really cool that thinks I'm really cool. Someone that is beautiful, that wants to be with me, right? Uh, that's a self-centered version of love, this, this kind of romance. Real love is other-oriented, and, and as such, it's enhanced by the otherness. There may be something to the fact that opposites attract, right? Um, it's, this, this, this true love is enhanced by the otherness of the other. It's a true self-gift. It's true intimacy, Right? They're naked and not ashamed. They can share everything. Their whole life is transparent. Their whole life is vulnerable with one another here before the fall. Uh, there's mutual delight, and there's this idea of expansion, that their love is going gonna, is gonna, to um, be contagious in a sense. It's going to uh, produce others who also love, and that love will just spread on and on. Right? Um, but now, uh, now we experience real brokenness in those relationships, right? All of this beauty and wonder and glory and joy and intimacy that you have right here at the end of chapter 2 is just shattered and gone uh, by chapter 3. Right? We have real brokenness. It's very difficult for us to experience even a glimpse to, to love truly, to really open our, ourselves up to each other, to really open our lives and be honest and vulnerable and, and experience true intimacy, right? even with the person you've been with for years in a marriage, these things are very difficult for us because we live in a world of real brokenness because of our sin. And we'll talk about that more um, 
uh, next week as we talk about the, the fall. But, um, but marriage, in all of its beauty and all of its intimacy, is the way things are supposed to be. Right? It's a huge, significant aspect of um, the purpose and the destiny of humanity as created in God's image. And marriage is a picture that we see through the scriptures. It's a picture of something greater than just the union between one man and one woman. It's a picture of something uh, far greater. It actually uh, reflects the relationship between Jesus Christ himself and his people. And if, if the most beautiful, intimate marriage relationship you can picture, it's just a, it's a dim reflection of the glory of the real union that takes place between Christ and his people. But, but, it's, a, but it's a similar kind of thing, right? A marriage reflects the union between Christ and his church. And we heard about that. Nathan read it in uh, Ephesians 5. <clears throat> Paul's letter says, uh, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. So this, the two shall become one flesh. This is a quote right, from our passage. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, nevertheless, even though this is like heady, theological, spiritual union stuff, uh, tremendously, eternally profound stuff, mystery, uh, the, the relationship between Christ and the church, nevertheless, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the, love, let the wife uh, see that she respects her husband, right? So there's this, this real deep uh, reflection that's, um, that marriage is supposed to provide for us of the relationship between Christ and his church. And again, you see that all over the place in the scriptures as God talks about his people uh, in several different ways, there's several illustrations that he employs for the relationship that, uh, um, the way that that relationship is characterized. But one of the most common is that God is married to His people, right? And His people, in their sin, have committed adultery against God. They've committed unfaithfulness. They've broken their marriage covenant. Right? They're supposed to be loyal, and uh, they cheated on Him with other gods. You see that all over the place in the scriptures, and you see the, the end result of, um, of creation and redemption and history being sort of this finally, at last, the true union between Christ and his church. And it's said that this will be a, the wedding supper of the Lamb, right? Where, where God takes his people, where Christ himself, the bridegroom, takes his bride, the church, his people, and, and they are united. Uh, we are united with him eternally and true delight and true intimacy characterizes us in our relationship with God forever. And we see, uh, just go home and read Psalm 45. I'll read a couple of verses from this psalm. But this is a, a beautiful psalm picturing uh, Christ as the, the king and the bridegroom, and we, his people, as the, the beautiful um, bride. It says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And then later in that psalm, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she's led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. 
Um, so this is, this is a song celebrating the union between Christ, the Messiah, and, uh, and his people as the union between a king and a princess in their marriage, right? And the princess is given uh, these, these beautiful garments to put on, just as we see at the end of Revelation that uh, God's people is given, the, the bride is given beautiful garments to adorn herself <clears throat> with uh, in, in her everlasting relationship. So um, this, this verse, 223, sort of characterizes uh, the whole of scriptures. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That, that real union, that real marital union that Adam and Eve experienced, that some of us experienced to some degree in our marriages, uh, that, that real joy and that real intimacy, that real love, the, the intense, total marital love uh, is what we were made for and it's what we're redeemed for. We're made for that kind of a relationship with God. Right? That kind of a relationship with God, it's what we're saved for. And in order to rescue us from our self-love, which has this inescapable gravity, it's like a black hole in our hearts, we can't help but love ourselves. And any, uh, any relationships where we engage that, that look like love really a lot of times just boils down to self-love, right? Like romance. Um, this really is about me. This is about me feeling good that this person loves me, right? And I'll engage in that relationship, and I'll call that love. That's not love. It's self-love. And it has an inescapable gravity, and in order to rescue us from that, God sent his son into the world to love us, not just to show us what love really looks like, which he did clearly and profoundly by giving his life for people like us, uh, he, not just to show us his love, but to love us and to, cl- to cleanse us, to make us his beautiful bride, to take somebody uh, who was not a beautiful bride <laughs> And to, uh, to beautify her and to glorify her and to make her pure and righteous and holy in God's sight, to make her ready for her eternal union with God, he gave himself up for us. Jesus did that. He gave himself up for us to fill us with his spirit of love so that we would be, be free to truly love again, uh, even as God loves us. And that love, that union that we have with Christ um, is like the, the marriage with children being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with the love of God, uh, that love that we have with Christ is meant, meant to spread into all the earth, into every corner of the cosmos. Right? It's not just to, to be limited with us right here. It's not just a relationship between me and God. It's us and God, and it's not just us. It's not just the church. It's really like the whole universe is meant to be in a relationship where there's union with Christ. These, this is where it gets like into great mystery. I'm not sure how to understand it totally. But in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1, I mean, Ephesians 1 says, God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite all things in Christ. And then Colossians 1, in, in Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. Um, and I've, I've quoted him before. Peter Mead has a book, um, Please to Dwell, a book on the Incarnation. Uh, and he says, he talks about the marital intent in everything. He says, marriage is the great picture of God's intent to unite the diverse into the delight of true unity. Right, you see that here at the beginning. It's important enough. It gets airtime before the fall, right, in the first couple chapters of the, the scriptures that, that show the trajectory of all the scriptures. Marriage is the, 
In a sense, it's the prototype of what God is doing in all of history with all of the universe, uniting all things, a real union in the, in the diversity of all things uh, in Christ. And so, um, so some applications of this, uh, that this is God's stated purpose up front and what he's redeeming us for in Christ, is that your relationship to Jesus Christ, it supersedes spousal intimacy. Your relationship to Jesus is, uh, is more important, uh, and it's more wonderful, and it's more glorious, and, um, and more passionate and delightful than your relationship with a spouse could ever be. Right? The, the relationship that you have with a spouse if you're married, or the relationship maybe you hope to have with a spouse someday if you get married, uh, that relationship is a dim reflection of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with you by his grace. Uh, your relationship to him supersedes all relationships, even this relationship. And so your, your passion for him, your devotion for him, your delight in him, uh, the, the mutual giving and taking of, of, of love, right, where we need um, his love and his love frees us to love him in return, uh, the security that we find in him, our identity being found in him, we try to find all these things in, uh, in marital romance, and if, if we try to find those things ultimately in our marriages, our lives will disintegrate, right? You cannot find your identity in your spouse. Your spouse cannot provide you with eternal security, right? Uh, your deepest devotion, your deepest passion, your deepest intimacy has to be with Christ first, and that will bring order and flourishing to the rest of your relationships, starting with your marriage, right? But first, uh, your relationship to Christ, and, um, and that by his grace, because uh, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve to be in relationship with God. He's gone to great lengths to, to get into your life, come into the world and get into your life and renew your relationship and restore that relationship by his grace. And uh, that should be your first priority. And so <clears throat> your relationship with Christ, then, it really does sustain you whether you're single or whether you're married, like whatever stage you're at with, with regard to a marriage relationship. Your relationship with Christ gives you the resources you need right now where you are. Uh, well, it's, if you're single, you know what? It's okay to be single because the true, deep, joyful, delightful intimacy that you're maybe desperately looking for uh, in a spouse you have that already with Jesus Christ by his grace. It's already yours. Um, so it's okay to be single. It still might be hard, but uh, your relationship with Christ will sustain you in your singleness. And if you're single and maybe you hate the idea of being married, you're, you're afraid of the idea of being married, it's okay to be married. Right? If you're single uh, and you look at marriage reluctantly, it's okay to be married. Right? There's nothing to be afraid of because Christ equips you through your relationship with him by his grace. He equips you to be able to engage in uh, even a marriage, even though that might seem daunting to you. Uh, gives you resources for marriage, right? Clearly, uh, maybe, maybe the majority of the adults in this room, this is who we're talking about. Um, and, and all of us, all of us have, have real problems in our marriage, right? Um, if you think you're the only one, you're not. Uh, I'll go ahead and say something. I've told this to a couple friends uh, this week. Uh, is that uh, a couple Fridays ago, 
Uh, it was a bit of a hard week, the end of a week. We'd be, been exhausted all day uh, doing this and that and then going to somebody's house for dinner and get home. And the littlest thing set us off into a, a big argument, my wife and I, and, um, uh, which is actually a common occurrence, right? We argue fairly frequently. There's usually some friction. Um, and this was kind of one of those knockdown drag outs, uh, doors slamming, shouting, surprising I didn't wake up the kids, <laughs> right? With whatever it is we were arguing about, I can't even remember, right? Um, there's, there's real friction between people who live together because we're broken people and we need the resources that God's grace provides to bring us the union that we're supposed to have, to bring us the real vulnerability, to make us uh, more able to not get defensive when somebody says something critical to you. You know, Your spouse can really hit those buttons. Your spouse probably hits those buttons all the time. And you probably use words like, you always do this. You never do this. Um, there's real friction in our relationships. There's real conflict. And uh, Jesus Christ gives us the peace to be able to engage in those things without being defensive, without scrambling to uh, fix our own image, uh, trying to protect our reputation with our spouse. Um, gives us real resources to be able to actually give ourselves in sacrificial love to our spouses. The resources from that, uh, for that come from the gospel. Um, and so, um, so you should expect conflict. Right? You should expect conflict. In fact, uh, conflict is probably um, one of the most consistent and important ways in which God is uh, at work in our lives. The conflict in our relationships provides opportunities for us to apply the gospel, right? to go to God for help, to depend on him, to give up ourselves, to live outside of ourselves and live vicariously in Christ, in his identity, in his righteousness, in his strength, in his joy, in his love. Conflict is uh, all over the place in our lives, especially in our marriages. We should expect that, and we should not try to avoid it. We should actually say, this is where God is working in me, and this is where God is enabling me to love right, through this difficult moment. Right? Um, so you should expect conflict. It's meant to help you grow, and you have the resources to grow. You have the real resources at hand to be able to, to be a good spouse even in a hard relationship. You do have those resources. Uh, you don't need to get defensive. You can open up and share your real struggles. There is real hope for your relationship. I don't care who you are. Um, there's real hope because uh, of who Christ is, and because of his grace at work in your life. W.H. Auden, is a uh, poet, says, uh, says, like everything which is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will, any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. Whether happy or unhappy, your marriage is a glorious opportunity for the love of Christ to work in you and through you. Um, you really are one with your spouse, and so you can pursue a deeper unity in your distinctiveness. Cherish the otherness. It's a necessary otherness. You need that. If you're going to be like God, if you're going to live in his image, you need uh, your spouse to be different from you, and you need to value their, their differences, right? Not just tolerate them, not just work around them. 
You need to, to find ways to cherish the differences, that necessary otherness that you see in your spouse, right? Uh, it's been a couple years since I uh, talked about this passage, uh, a couple summers ago, but the first time I did, I put this quote on Facebook, and I said, you're not the only way to be a person. You are not the only way to be a person. And I put that on Facebook, and that post got 13 likes, uh, on Facebook, every single one of them was from a woman. Every single one that expressed, hey, I like that. You're not the only way to be a person. That resonates with me. Every single one was a woman. Young women, old women, white, black, married, single, Christian, non-Christian, whatever. There were, there's a whole variety, but it was all women that liked that quote. The one response that I got from a man was in a private message, and he said, sorry, I do not follow your quote does not make any sense to me. What are you trying to communicate? <laughs> I was glad he asked that at least. <laughs> uh, women loved it. This guy was scratching his head. What does that mean? You're not the only way to be a person. Right? Maybe that's easier to, uh, for women to resonate with, right? Maybe there's something about that, the relationality of women that uh, <clears throat> it makes sense. Men, you need to be aware that, that you're your wives are persons, like you, every bit is human, but that they're different. They're a different way of being a person, right? And that's uh, according to God's design. That's how it's supposed to be. There's a necessary otherness. And if you're married, men, then laying your life down for your wife in love, like Christ did for the church, Ephesians 5, laying your life down for her and celebrating and cherishing your union together with her in a way that exalts her is what you're called to do. It sounds like it probably takes some effort on most of our part, right? Uh, you're not the only way to be a, a person. She is a wonderful way to be a person. Not just different, wonderful. And to find ways to cherish and exalt her, uh, that's, that's your role. You cannot think of her as your servant. That's what Ephesians says. You can't think of her as your servant. You can't just assume that she's your family's servant. Right? You are her servant. And so your authority in that relationship, which is called out in Ephesians 5, there's an authority uh, relationship there. It's not an authority um, <clears throat> based on one who's greater and one who's lesser. It's an authority relationship between equals. Remember, there's no subordination, essentially. Uh, your authority, if it's going to be Christian authority is going to be like Christ, will be one characterized primarily by your service, by your self-sacrificial service. If you get into arguments, you got to find ways to let her have her way. Right? If you disagree about something, you've, you find ways to let her have her way. <clears throat> that's, that's your role. Right? Um, and, and married women, uh, you are to give yourselves fully and only in all love and respect and honor to your husbands, even as the church gives herself to Christ. And there's a real submission there, right? There's a real submission. <clears throat> it does not mean you are less than your husband. It also does not mean you are more than your husband. Even though he may not act like it, he is a person too, right? Um, <clears throat> and, and your relationship is to be characterized by your submissiveness. And that also is a quality of Jesus Christ himself, who is fully God 
He's equally God with the Father, right? The Son and the Father are equal. The Son is not less than the Father, right? He's not less God. He's not less in any way, but he submits himself. He submits himself, and he does what his Father uh, says, right? So submission does not entail or does not imply inequality. It's a choice that you make to give your love in a certain way to this person who's your equal. We're all called to esteem others more highly than ourselves. We're all called to do that. Philippians 2, esteem others just like Christ did, esteem others more highly than yourselves, and that's actually the special role to which a wife is called in her marriage. To esteem others as, uh, as more highly than ourselves. And grace enables that. Grace enables true... Um, relationship with regard to authority. It turns our ideas of authority and submission upside down, right? The gospel does. Uh, Grace enables true vulnerable intimacy, where again, uh, you don't have to be self-defensive. You don't have to be controlling uh, your image or your reputation with this other person. You don't have to keep things on a superficial level because you're afraid of conflict. You can really have true vulnerable intimacy. And when that happens, um, it's good for you in a, in a lot of different ways. When you rely on God's grace through Christ to renew your marriage and to start cultivating this, this real bond, this real union that you already have, um, then, uh, then all of your relationships will flourish. And Tim Keller has a good book <clears throat> uh, called The Mystery of Marriage. It's one of the best books I've read on marriage. He says that when marriage is healthy, then you find strength in your other relationships. Right? When that's going well... You really do find strength in your other relationships. So um, even though there's conflict in my marriage, uh, we're quick to confess our sins to each other and to offer forgiveness to each other. And if you've got two people who are willing to do that, two people who say, you know, the biggest problem in our marriage is my self-centeredness, and I'm going to own that, and I'm going to apologize for that, and, uh, and I'm going to extend forgiveness to my spouse. And if that's like what characterizes you, the grace of Christ at work in your life, if, if your marriage is healthy in that way, then you'll find real strength in all of your relationships. But when marriage is falling apart, it's pretty much guaranteed that your life's going to be a wreck. If your marriage is, uh, is on the rocks, it's pretty much guaranteed uh, that, that all of your relationships will suffer. And this is because marital love when it reflects God's image, when it reflects divine love, it is central to our created purpose. It is central to our created nature and our destiny. If true intimacy and mutual delight and trust, if these things aren't at work in your marriage, then you're just not going to be able to engage in all of your relationships the way that it's intended. Um, And so if you you need help with that, come and talk to me. I'm really excited. Uh, I don't think any marriage is a lost cause. Uh, and that's not because of you. Like, I remember doing marital counseling uh, with people. It's not because, wow, these people really have potential. It's because of the grace that's found in Christ. It is absolutely sufficient for any marriage. Right? So if you've got troubles, come talk to me. <laughs> there's, there's hope for you in the gospel. And all of this, uh, you know, we've been talking more limited way about marriage. It all applies generally to all of our relationships, whether you're married or not. Uh, the, the distinctions between the genders, it's, it's, uh, uh, there's constant application for that in all of our relationships. Right? Um, we should not be dissatisfied with our gender. Maybe some of us are. Maybe some of us are dissatisfied that 
I was born this way. I wish I really was the other gender, right? Um, we should not be dissatisfied with our gender. We should not seek to become the other sex. We should be content to be ourselves because God made us. He made us this way for relationships that, because of the brokenness of the world, are very difficult sometimes, but we can rely on God's grace to carry us through. We can find real contentment in who we are and who God made us to be and in the way that we can relate to people um, around us. We should not think of humanity uh, humanity as some kind of third essence or substance. You know, you've got male and female, and humanity is, is something out here that uh, they share elements of. That's like the, the substance of humanity, and it's expressible in either <clears throat> uh, maleness or femaleness. Um, humanity is not asexual. Right? Humanity is not neutral. Uh, it's not gender neutral. Humanity comes in two flavors. Humanity comes in two flavors, and our sexuality is not peripheral. It is essential. It is definitive. Right? It's something that we're to celebrate. We're to celebrate it together in our relationships with each other. And we shouldn't think that male is better than female or vice versa, because you absolutely need both. You need one in relationship with other in order to have a complete humanity that reflects God's image. Right? The image of the triune God is one of uh, one in relationship with other. And so, uh, you know, this concept goes against sexism. Right? Um, one, one, the male is not superior to the female, and, nor vice versa. So we need each other because we were made in God's image to love the other, not just to get love, but to give ourselves in love, right? To love the other. And it's only as we're renewed in relationship to Christ in, in real love, it's going to last forever, real, true, deep, profound intimacy with God through Jesus Christ by his grace, it's only then that we can consider the others in our lives rightly and value them rightly and treat them rightly. So put your faith in Christ and live in these relationships that are restored by his grace. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it, uh, it might seem too good to be true that your grace is sufficient for us, to carry us through all of our relationships. Um, some of us might be having a hard time right now, even in this, uh, this most precious of our relationships, uh, in our marriages. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ, on the great and glorious hope that's to be found in him, the peace that we have with you and with each other through his grace. And it's a peace that carries us uh, through conflict. We don't avoid conflict by... Um, walking with you. Uh, you walk with us through the conflict that's in our lives. And as uh, marriage and, in fact, uh, all of our relationships can so easily be characterized by uh, conflict that uh, deepens and rifts that widen, uh, we pray that your grace would redeem our relationships, that you would fix our eyes in Christ in a way that truly has significance for the way that we engage in the relationships that we're in. And we pray that you would do this so that... Um, not just for our own, our own sake, that we would be able to experience uh, more pleasurable relationships with each other, but, um, but that your love, the love of Christ itself, would be something that we would share with each other and that that love would spread to all the corners of the earth. We pray um, that, that your grace, your gospel, would be exalted through our relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.